Hello, everyone. In this episode of the Hewlett Packard's Lab podcast from Research to Reality, in our second season and in the first series on the future of HPC, it is my great pleasure and honor to introduce to you Srinivas Rangan Sukumar, who is Distinguished Technologist in HPC and MCS CT office. Hello, Rangan. Hey, Dan. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah. Uh, so tell us a little bit about your role. Uh, this is a mouthful. Distinguished Technologies at uh, HPC and MCS. What do all these words mean? So, so I'm in the Chief Technology Office, right? So what that means is I've got three different tasks to complete every day. And uh, I kind of see it as the first one being one of a technology maven who's on the lookout for technologies that are soon to be disruptive. They're going to be a disruptive opportunity for us from a business perspective. And uh, the second role I see myself doing every day is being an architect where I design, I benchmark, and then I inspire future products using the technologies I just saw that are going to be disruptive. And then the third role is to be an evangelist of uh, what we are building to communicate a bold vision that's founded on pragmatic reality. So that's how I see myself doing this. And my area of focus within the business unit, the HPC MCS business unit, is around AI and data. So that's kind of my role where look at technology, make sure the technology is going to be great for customers solving big problems, and then make sure that I'm able to communicate the, uh, the story of what's coming pretty well and looking ahead two or three years in the future. So that's my role. Uh, this is this is great. Uh, now I understand. But for those who don't understand these acronyms, HPC, MCS, what do they stand for? So HPC stands for High Performance Computing, and MCS stands for Mission Critical Systems. And so HPC, when you say High Performance Computing, it talks about systems that are that are built for the sake of beating what commodity does not offer. Right? So you're trying to solve problems that you can't solve with off-the-shelf hardware. You need the extra edge of performance. You need the extra edge of latency uh, throughputs and so forth. So you've got certain certain characteristics that you want to improve better than what, what is available off the shelf. So you think of HPC as that bleeding edge of uh, infrastructure technology. You think about mission critical systems, it's about putting together the technologies, be it commodity or be it HPC, towards something that solves a problem end to end and can stay in production reliably for a long, long time. So that's those are the two terminologies and how we think about HPC and MCS uh, in, our, in our day jobs. Perfect, perfect. Now, now, now I understand everything and I hope uh, the audience as well. So how did you become distinguished technologist at HPC and MCS uh, CT office? Uh, well, that's now a much, much more interesting question, right? So it's going to have symptoms of uh, you know, hindsight, but uh, I'll tell you the truth. And it, it's just, I've been fortunate enough to live and uh, experience you know, the, the, the chase for intellectual freedom in academia. I've been able to build zero to prototype uh, you know, enthusiastic startup attempts. And then I've also had the opportunity to think about scale think about business models and think about volume and corporate environments. And so the story dates back to uh, grad school days when I came here to pursue PhD in, in the States. And uh, at that time I was inspired by 3D computer vision and autonomous robotics. And so uh, that's what my area was. And I did uh, some uh, research in, in artificial intelligence about how do you integrate different types of sensors and how do you put them all together to be able to navigate a vehicle autonomously in a, in a, in a, in a known and an unknown environment. And how do you make decisions on its uncertainty? And so, so right after my PhD, I ended up going and uh, thinking about, hey, I found something very interesting in my PhD. I want to commercialize it. So I ended up going to a startup 
that was uh, trying to create content for 3D movies without markers. So the state of the art at the time was uh, to, to put, you know, you wear markers on your body, you stand in front of a green screen, and then you capture 3D motion. We were trying to get away with all the markers in the green screen. And then we realized very quickly a year into the, uh, into the work that uh, we were way ahead of the curve. And we hit this big data problem where a single minute of video needed multiple hours of processing to be able to do what we wanted to do on 3D video. So, uh, so yeah, that was the big data problem we hit. And uh, that helped me reinvent myself as a postdoctoral researcher at Oak Ridge National Laboratory. Right, so Oakwood National Laboratory is known for its supercomputing slash high performance computing resources. It houses the world's fastest computer every few years. And so uh, that's where, you know, we were, I was challenged to work on uh, national scale problems, right? So problems like, how do you prevent healthcare fraud? It's not about finding the evidence of fraud, but more about how do you prevent it? It's a much more challenging, you know, what if problem, right? And then uh, it's problems like, how do I make policy to make healthcare affordable? So those were interesting problems where you had to simulate processes. You had to think about not just what is, but you also had to think about what if and what else and so forth, right? So that, that, was, the, uh, that was the characteristic there. Then you get to work on problems like, how do we make the grid reliable, the electric grid that's, that's multiple years old, multiple decades old now, how do you make it reliable and so forth? So I have this experience, interesting uh, translation between problems of national scale, you know, problems that are academic. And then once I was having this, uh, you know, interesting, uh, interesting job of being able to balance between the two, I got an offer from Cray to be the chief technology office, right? And so the challenge there was, can you bring this expertise that you've been using to use supercomputers and addressing national scale problems with some academic research that feeds it and come to the CTO's office and, uh, and build the next generation exascale computers? And so that was the role I couldn't, I couldn't say no to. And so I switched to the industry yeah. for Cray for a couple of years, HPE bought Cray. And then the next thing you know, you know I'm, uh, I'm here imagining the future of HPC AI and data at HPE. So that's, that's, uh, that's, that's the story. And the next step is podcast with me. <laughs> that, that sounds good. I like that. <laughs> so it was uh, really interesting when you're talking and it, it occurred to me that the most common failure of startups is not in failing in delivering technology, but being too early. Uh, it's all about the timing. And it's not just startups, almost any inventor. So you were mentioning uh, high performance computing uh, and AI and big data. And how do these things relate? It uh, occurs to me that they are very tightly uh, correlated, but I'd like to hear your opinion. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it's going to be hard for me to describe the relationship without uh, you know, using politically correct terminology, but I'll try. I mean, so if you think about all these three together, right, so there is no AI without data, right? And then, you know, AI would not, the AI of today, the one we know when we talk to Alexa, the AI we know when we sit inside a car, wouldn't have been possible without HPC mm -hmm. if you use that train the AI models. And then HPC, by definition, generates a lot of data that you have to sift through to come up with good insights, right? So, so there is, one couldn't have existed without the other. And so it's, it's an interesting mix of uh, what's going on there. But then if you think about the underlying truth on what each one of these methods achieve, they basically enable practitioners to make better, faster decisions, right? And, and, and they surface, you know, either through data or through simulation or through, uh, or through predictive capabilities, it surfaces, you know, what you can explore, the, 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 what, what you can find in the data, then extrapolate to what if you do certain things, what will happen, what, what changes if you change a few parameters. And it also helps you figure out what else is out there that I don't know about. 
and then gets you the next step of what could be, how can I hypothesize a step beyond what I just know, right? So there's a flavor of all of these happening in the HPC world, in the data world, and in the AI world. And so you wanna think about you know, the, the, the different ways you make decisions and the different types of models you use to make these decisions. And so in, in my head, when I think about all of these three, I think of uh, HPC and the model that is associated with HPC as something that's physics and science inspired. Right? So you write down a set of algebraic equations that you have to solve that describes the physical phenomenon. You know, it could be you know, how the Big Bang was formed or it could be you know, how, how uh, a fluid flows into a container and so forth. So that is the HPC model. The AI model is much more statistically driven. It's another set of equations that tries to capture the generative aspect of how a process comes about. And you use that model then to predict millions of outcomes that you can as fast as you could. And, and so that's the AI approach to, 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 uh, to the modeling. And, and then that could be, you know, the, you use the AI model going back to the Big Bang example, you're probably mm -hmm. thinking about, you know, how do I search for the formation of supernova or how do I search for a formation of a life, uh, you know, engaging planet, right? And so, and so that's, the, that's the AI model. And then you're starting to think about data models, which is how you organize data for search and discovery. So you know supernova has certain signatures. So now do you want to do the simulation of the Big Bang and then come back and look for it, look for small pockets of energy distributions or pockets of wave distributions and so forth in your data to be able to say that something happened and that you can repeat the process over and over again. So that's the, uh, the flavor. And so again, going back to the functionality I was talking about, we can think of HPC as uh, something that can be used to build precise and accurate models. You can think about better data building higher fidelity HPC, and then you can think about HPC enabling faster insights on big data problems. So the relationship is very, very interrelated. And uh, often people ask me, why would you need one versus the other? I think we have not even explored one independently to its maximum potential. So the, the possibilities that when three combine together is, that it's just endless. So yeah, that's, that's my view of how these are related. The, the, this is really great. Uh, and I loved your very precise definitions, as precise as they could be. And you gave great examples of each individual technology use, uses. Uh, but could you, uh, it's, it's a little bit abstract. So could you uh, put it all together? Can you give us some real use cases where they all use together? Oh, definitely. So this is what gets me up every day in the morning, right? So, so okay. And so fast forwarding from the big bang I talked about is something that's grounded on reality. And I can think of three use cases on top of my head right away. The first one I would say, you know, it's much more apropos given the pandemic we are going through is drug discovery. The second one I can think about is autonomous cars. And third one I can talk about is, uh, is geospatial intelligence, right? So, so if you think about these three use cases, I'll, I'll try to explain them a little bit more in detail. So, so you think about drug discovery, and this is close to my heart because, you know, Dan, you, you and I were involved in a different talk the other day about COVID-19. And when HPE yeah. you know, decided to do you know, the force for good rapid response, the idea was you know, let's offer all of our IP and let's offer our expertise towards accelerating a cure, maybe a vaccine, maybe a drug or whatever. And so the way it, it unfolded in front of us was that the, the collaborators that we were working with, the scientists, the academic researchers, they wanted to do multiple things. Right? The first thing they started off was, I, I need HPC models that can simulate the molecular dynamics to tell me if this virus is over here in 3D structure and I have a drug molecule coming in, will this molecule have the characteristics of being able to bind on the virus and either stop it from replicating 
or make it dysfunctional, right? And make it not as viral as, it's, uh, as it is actually heading toward, right? So that's the HPC model where from first principles, we didn't know anything about the virus. We knew a lot about the drugs, but can we now use the first principle models to tell if this is a potential drug that, that's gonna work on this particular virus structure? And then when we were working with them, we realized that you know, to go through a small database of molecules was taking multiple hours with HPC. And so we had to create AI model that will help with predicting the binding potential. And so what AI models help do is you're not limited to a thousand molecule database you want to screen with this first principle approach. You are now going and looking at millions of molecules, some that could be virtual, some could be you know, synthetic that nobody has seen on earth yet, but potentially be manufactured in a facility. So you're thinking about you know, that, that, uh, that capability with, uh, with AI, where you're not limited to a thousand molecules, you're looking at a database of 35 million compounds that, that could potentially be, be a cure. And so when we were doing this, and we realized that we were using deep learning for the AI approach, because that gives you the most accuracy, most collaborators came back and said, that's not enough. I need explainable AI, which tells me why this drug works. I need the evidence to be able to put it onto a clinical trial or take it to the next stage, even do some experiments in the lab to know that it's safe to conduct experiments on, on that hypothesis. So that's where we were able to bring you know, data from literature. We were able to bring in about 12 different databases, 160 billion medical facts from integrating all these databases. And we were able to show evidence. And so when we had this going on for about six months, both our customers and collaborators had multiple hypotheses that came from all of these different approaches that they mixed and matched. And, uh, and interestingly, several of those uh, hypotheses that they worked with us in collaboration is now actually undergoing clinical trials. So that's one you know, solid use case I could give in, uh, in, in combining HPC, AI, and big data into a, a useful output that relates to all of us in, the, in this pandemic situation. Similar story with autonomous cars. This, you know, so we talk about different levels of autonomy. And so where we are today, we are you know, using mostly AI, looking at what most cars look like when they're driving on the street, and then figuring out you know, where mm -hmm. they're headed and then predicting the, the role pitch off, how you wanna you know, drive your car and how the action needs to take place to be able to keep the passenger safe. But then most of the situations that the autonomous car has to learn going forward is, is the long tail, right? So things that you know, all of a sudden you're trying to turn left and there's a construction cone that's dug a deep hole there. And so that's a situation that an autonomous car doesn't know how to decide, but you want to expose the AI system to understand such situations, right? So, so those are situations better learned in simulation. And so the HPC angle of how do I come up with those scenarios becomes a reinforcement learning problem. So you see the interplay of HPC AI happening there as well. And then I talked about geospatial intelligence, and this is typically, you know, think about weather data that's coming out of HPC simulation that talks about how the land, the water, the wind are all interacting with each other. And then you use that weather data, you combine it with transportation data to come up with predictive models that tell you how long, when your package is going to arrive, given the weather situation happening across the country, happening across the world, if it's shipping, shipping industry and so forth. So, so there is multiple use cases. I just gave you three examples there. So I hope it convinced you there. Yeah. Oh, excellent. These are great examples. What I would like to learn next is how does your role at Hewlett Packard Enterprise contribute to these extremely challenging uh, problems? And how do you fit with the rest of the teams? I doubt that any of these problems could be solved by one, even handful. They probably need teams and teams to work on. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, so I'm, I'm, yeah, you're absolutely right. So we have, you know, at least a thousand team, uh, people team that's working on this problem, right? So, so you know, 
the way we work is, you know, we take these problems, we listen to the customers that have these problems that approach us and say, you know, I want to build a machine that helps, you know, people solve these big problems. And not just that HPE has a big team thinking about how to solve these problems. Each of these customers has their own, you know, user base, if you want to think about it that way. And, and so they've got you know, hundreds, if not thousands of people thinking about data, thinking about simulation, thinking about you know, the AI models they could potentially use and so forth. And so when they come to us and tell us, here is a problem statement, here is our user base that has these applications that are, that are domain specific, that either produces ROI or is important for the insight that drives the next action, we sit with them, brainstorm. And the way we think about it is, is we break the machine uh, design, the architecture problem, as one of you know four levels of uh, of, of of use. Right? The first one we think about is: Do we want to build a machine that runs just one workload? In which case, we just say go to commodity cluster, you know, buy buy something that works, you know, for for fifty people or hundred people, and, and then don't think about you know optimizing anything. But then, when you have customers looking for, I need faster performance, I need faster response, or I need the simulation to run within six hours because that's my limit before I need to take a decision. So you're thinking about how do I push that boundary a little bit? So we start thinking about, you know, how do you build a system that works for, let's say, an organization like NERSC, which houses 3,000 scientists, right? Each one of them could come from different domains, and they're going to come with very creative ideas of how to use AI, or how to use HPC, or how to use their big data that they've collected from a different experiment. And so we have to think about how do we build a system that, is, uh, that, that can run all three types of workloads without too much of loss in performance or the, 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 the performance per dollar not being justifiable from a system perspective. And then we start thinking about if somebody were to build a workflow that combines the HPC simulations with the AI productivity and makes it you know, interplay with data, now can that system run a convergent workflow that mixes and matches these components? Right, so that's mm -hmm. the second uh, idea. And then the third thing we start thinking about is, and often the request comes out, and this is where you know, my, my uh, previous job really, really helped, was you have a specific workload, a specific application that you've figured out and you've solved, but then you'd like to have extremely high resolution inputs, for example. And I could take autonomous car example again. You go from, I have a camera that's doing you know, my, my phone quality video, and all of a sudden you're replacing it with six 4K sensors. So now you've just made your problem bigger, and so which means the entire workflow used to infer from that problem has to have as much resources as, as the size of the problem you just blew up. Right? So we think about that as scaling the workload. And so can the same system we built take on that kind of a challenge and be able to run it fast? So if I threw five more compute resources at it, uh, five more computers at the same problem, will it solve the problem five times faster? So that's the question that, uh, that we have to answer at that stage. And then finally, and this is where I'm going to connect all these four dots, finally is where when a customer walks up to us and says, hey, I have this workflow where I'm predicting you know, something or where I'm trying to come up with an insight and I, I, want, to, I want to communicate that insight in, in, in a few seconds, I've figured out this workflow. I want to be the best at this, so make me run this the fastest and the, and, and, the, and the best in the world, and I don't want anybody else to be able to beat me, right? So we build those systems as well, and that's why those systems are called supercomputers. I, I put the other set of uh, systems I described in the uh, high-performance computing category, right? And so, so in, in terms of relating all of these to my role, I think that, that goes back to the question, is what I do on a, day, a daily basis is, well, let's, let me start with the last one first, 
So I want to build the fastest system. I want to build the most performance system, right? So what do I do there? So I look at the mm -hmm. landscape of accelerators, right? So I look at, you know, what's out there? You know, what, what, what is the, what is Intel got? What's Nvidia got? What's AMD got? What are mm -hmm. some of these new emerging startups coming up with, you know, Cerebrus of the world, the graph course of the world and so forth. And how is that processor? How is that technology? How is the architecture going to impact this a particular workload I heard from a customer? So I kind of come up with benchmarks. I come up with design mechanisms to uh, think about the ecosystem that goes with it. And so once we, and then we think about, you know, how do I integrate the rest of the workflow? Where is the data sitting? Where does it have to be moved? And where is it going to run at scale? And how do I give 3,000 people access to that data and access to the ability for them to compute on the data? And so, so when you think about all of this, it's, 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 it's putting together systems that, you know, that helps you be the best performant hardware by design. And then you start thinking about how to make it the best performant hardware from a productivity perspective, where the ecosystem that you offer as HPE doesn't take away the experience of uh, being able to use the system rather than trying to come up with, oh, I need to change code to make my application work on this particular system. So it's the balance of performance productivity that, uh, that, that, that kind of, uh, that, that I work on every day on my day job to make sure when we build those systems, we have a good pathway to, for, to encourage a customer to go after these workloads at scale. So that's my answer, Dan. Great. This is great example and, and, and um, very uh, well explained. Uh, but let me see whether I understood what you were saying. Um, the way I understood what you were saying is that these traditional high-performance supercomputers, which were really great at doing uh, workload simulations, um, were not as good for this big data uh, processing. Uh, and so you need to somehow uh, come up with new designs that will be good at both or could in parallel conduct both or however you want to explain it. Can you give us a little bit more perspective on that? Sure. So I, it is a great question. And a few years ago, I was, uh, yeah, okay, I mentioned that I was the uh, group leader for data science and workflows at Oak Ridge National Lab, where we had the supercomputing resource and we had these big problems. And then when we tried to do the math for, is the data science problem we are trying to solve best solved in this machine from a performance cost perspective? And is it better solved in a commodity hardware system and so often we ended up you know, debating about, oh, we are not leveraging what HPC offers for the big data problem. And, very, and more, more often than not, it was not because of the hardware, it was because of the software. So HPC had moved way past and fast in terms of optimizing codes unique to their problem sets. The data world was still catching up, right? And so, so I, I kind of describe it in, uh, as, as, as a tale of two ecosystems, right? So when the XSKL ideas have come out, the, the requirements that we capture are typically, you know, in the, in, the, in the sense that, can you maximize the performance per dollar? I would like to compute this many calculations per second, and I have a budget of X million dollars. So why don't you help me build the best system for that cost and maximize the, uh, the, the total performance measured in flops, floating point operations, right? And then, or the idea could be, you know, I, I have a budget of X, X thousand dollars. I just need a small system to, uh, to, to get me to the inside faster because my laptop is not sustainable. I have to do other things on my laptop, right? So it could be one or the other. Mm -hmm. And then the challenge would be, don't be too crazy about it because if you do change your system, I have to change code, I have to change all my applications. And so you have to have a balance between the newness of architecture 
and the uh, and, and how long it takes for a data scientist or how long it takes a HPC scientist to optimize and run the previously working code on this new system, right? And often when you upgrade one system to the other, you're trying to upgrade from a supercomputer of the previous generation to a new one, you're challenging yourself to saying, I want my benchmark for performance. I'm gonna spend too much. I'm gonna spend two X the amount. And so if I'm justifying two X the investment, am I getting 10 X the return or five X the return? So you're typically looking at, I want my code to run 10 X faster every two years, right? So, so we, we had the help of Moore's Law doing that for HPC systems, mm -hmm. but big data didn't catch up with, uh, with the software that you needed, the optimizations you need to make to catch up with the advances that HPC was making on, uh, on, on Moore's Law's uh, increasing trend. And so at the same time, you know, when you build a system, you can build a system for one customer and, and build that snowflake and expect that snowflake to be applicable for everybody. And so when we do architect systems, you have to think about if there are 50 applications that want to run on this machine, we want all of the 50 applications to run well to a certain, certain threshold of acceptable levels, right? And then, you know, as always, you're thinking about minimizing costs and power and everything. So this is all, you know, how you design a HPC system, right? So you're starting with the performance, you want the flop number, you have a budget, and then you're coming down with, how does my application scale for this new architecture? With the big data world, we realized, you know, it, it was mostly driven by the ROI per byte. Right? It's how much money will I make by saving this data? How much money will I make by predicting the data correctly in the future? And then in the, in the process, am I able to retrieve and, and feed the data back to its owner or back to its generator you know, with, with the capacity that I need, with the consistency I need, with the availability and the fault tolerance needed? So if I'm uploading photos, you know, I don't want it to disappear all of a sudden. Right? I would like to come back to it 10 years later if I have to. So you need that kind of uh, capability and support. We realized you know, most of the community in the data world was open source. So none of the optimizations that the HPC folks have done over the last two, three decades had not moved into the software stack that the big data folks were using. And then with the big data world, we realized the need for much more you know, secure environments, the need for preserving privacy is a lot more than in the HPC world. And then, uh, and, 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 and then you know, the, the, uh, the, the pain point was that a data scientist is much more expensive than the hardware. Right, so if you're if you're if you're investing in in HPC hardware, it already tells you that you know you've got a team of data scientists who are way more expensive to spend an hour waiting for results from the hardware. And if the results can come back in a minute, you have saved way more than what your hardware would have helped you do. Right, so 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 we we saw this different uh, worlds pretty soon, and that even when we build systems, we were measured on different figures of merit. Right, so on the one hand, we had you know. The metric was flops with the HPC systems. The metric was, you know, can I program it fast? Can I beat a particular benchmark? Versus on this side, the answer was from a big data perspective, do I have elasticity? Do I get my ROI for this particular machine? And uh, what is my time to insight? What is my time to accuracy if I'm training an AI model? Is it easy to use? I don't need to spend two hours writing, you know, four lines of code that'll work on the system. I would rather write, you know, take somebody else's code and run on this and it just works out of the box. So we were seeing these kinds of requirements that were kind of, uh, you know, the push and pull mechanism between the two uh, cultures of HPC traditionally for science and big data traditionally for enterprise. So I hope that that kind of uh, under, gave you an idea of, you know, the kind of challenges we optimize on a daily basis here at PE. Absolutely, absolutely. But it also opened up uh, many more questions. It appears that these two worlds are, uh, while peacefully coexisting and moving along, there's still two worlds. Do you see them ever coming together in the future? HPC and big data? 
Absolutely, I come, I definitely do. I think it's just inevitable, right? And uh, and and, uh, and if today is an indication of tomorrow, you know, I, I I'm willing to bet my money on you know the future economies being driven by some of these data sets that that are that are still in the HPC world, which is driven by you know the the, the need to understand the science behind what's happening and so forth. And so to give you you know concrete numbers around it, you know, if you think about data that's uh, geospatial, I talked about geospatial intelligence, about 33 exabytes are already collected from satellites, from sensors, using IoT, whatever techniques you've got. We've got 33 exabytes of data sitting in the government in the United States, and 95% and of the data has not been analyzed yet, right? So imagine the potential if we could analyze the 95% of the data that's collected but not analyzed. And then the projections towards 2025 and beyond is that 200 exabytes of data is going to come from cars alone, the autonomous cars example I talked about. 40 exabytes are going to come from just genomic data alone. And I'm talking human genomic data, forget about plants, right? So that's another hole can of bones to open. And then there's going to be zettabytes of IoT data coming in. And so what, what, these are all data sets that you traditionally don't associate with the database where you're able to ingest it, how you have a query language, you type a query and it comes back with answers, right? These are all, completely open research areas where you're having to take files, you're having to curate them, you're, you're having to you know, organize them into a feature store or a feature set, and then you're, you're able to query that feature set into a traditional, uh, traditional database type system. So that's, that's, that's the scientific data world. And when I, when I typically talk about this world, I also see that the data sets come in different shapes. And I like to use the word, the shape of data is going to be the future of how we design systems. And the shape is, uh, it could be tabular, which is your traditional Excel sheet, the comma-separated value format. It could be text, it could be images, it could be 3D structures, it could be time series, it could be graphs. It's just, it's, it, it just keeps going on and on and on, right? So what that means is once you're able to collect these data and you're seeing value from collecting these data sets, what you then have to do is think about how do I make this data available to somebody that's generating value from it faster or quicker? And what that translates to is added storage. I need to be able to index it. I need to be able to have metadata summaries so somebody can come and use the data after the first person touched it and created value out of it. And then you want to start thinking about how do I take the algorithms that, that are published in literature, that are open source tools that run on a single processor now to run on these big machines so I can process the 95% of the data that's not been analyzed yet. And so when you think about all these problem sets, it sounds so very similar to where HPC was where you couldn't push the limits because you can come up with a bigger model. You can push the limits for doing throughput workloads. You can push the limits for coming up with uh, an answer 10 times faster than you could before. And this was 10, 20 years ago with HPC. Now we see big data come in and say the same things to us, right? And so I, that's why their marriage is inevitable because now what we know as best practices in HPC, what we've done over the years in HPC can now translate and make an impact for the big data world. So I definitely see the two coming together. You have um, used the term scientific big data. There's a lot of big data, but uh, why is scientific big data and how important to high performance computing? Ooh, that's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a good question. Excellent question, right? So when I think about it, the, uh, the, when I use the word scientific big data, again, it's, it's a terminology that, uh, that I've coined up because that's, it's, I'm thinking about data sets 
that do not have the ability to be ingested into a database right away. And, uh, mm -hmm. and so what I mean by that is, so when you, when you, when you have folks that, that work on big data today, you're thinking about data that's already kind of pre-structured, right? So you have a schema well-defined, you're collecting all possible transactions, you're swiping your credit card, you know, every transaction of a credit card swipe goes into a database, it has a specific structure of who swiped it where for how much and whatnot. And then you have a query system, a business intelligence dashboard that summarizes who's doing what, and you're able to get, go, you know, gather your insights from the data. This data sets, when I use the word scientific big data, I associate the word science with big data because the big data term is still valid from the four Vs of you know, volume, velocity, veracity, and variety. But then you have this extra layer on top of it where you still don't understand the science. You know the what, but you don't know the why around this data, right? And so I'm just going to quickly go back to uh, the examples that, uh, that I've had before with drug discovery or autonomous vehicles and, and geospatial data. And so with drug discovery alone, if you think about what I mean by scientific big data there, the problem of scientific discovery is drug discovery is owned by the pharma industry, the pharma vertical. But then when you get to the next layer of what do they need end to end going from, hey, here's a new virus, I need to come up with a drug, you have to start thinking about, hey, I need to image this particular virus so I can use it in a digital world, in an in silico world. That means I have to work with a cryoEM microscope that produces 3D structures. And then you have a database of molecules and the natural databases that you know are you know, either 2D smile strings or they are you know, sometimes 3D structures as well. So that's those you can image using the same microscope you did the virus. And then you're looking at a million documents, 30 million publications in PubMed, for example. And somehow you're looking for evidence in the 30 million publications that you have over here. You have the millions of molecules in your database. So you're trying to figure out all the properties that have been published before in literature about these molecules. And then you have the ability to sequence genomes. And so you're sequencing the human, the patients, and you're sequencing the, uh, the virus itself and hence evolution and so forth. And so you're trying to figure out how does this sequence map to other proteins, other viruses, other bacteria, and how does that sequence impact the human sequence? Right, you're trying to understand the relationship between sequences, three structure, sequences, documents, and then add on top of it, you know, history data, clinical histories, discrete time series, add fitness tracking data, which is much more time series and so forth, which is, you know, you, you work out for 30 minutes a day at odd times during the day. And so it's different, you know, patterns of how you behave and so forth. And then you somehow have to put all these together. So you get the idea of relationships and graphs and correlation and causation and everything else. And so when I use the term scientific data, it's the process of what I do with the data that makes it a compute intensive problem. It's the need to be able to design, design workflows on it that helps you come up with better insights that are going to become production workflows in the future. And so until you get to that you know, guideline book that you put together and say, here's how my big data is going to become value, you're going through this process of discovery. And that discovery process is iterative. Right? So you keep going around until you figure out what's the best way to do it. And so we are in that stage where these data sets have just come in. We have figured out tools for big data. We've already figured out how to run you know, these tools fast at scale. And so all these pieces are coming together now. And so this is, goes back to the, you know, the search for the what is, what else, what if, and what could be is now a computationally intensive problem. And that's why I see the world of scientific big data, HPC and, and AI all coming in together into this data life cycle. And that's a better term to use uh, for, for describing this process saying what happens to the data from the time it was collected to the time an insight was drawn from it 
and then how they come back together and feed each other afterwards, right? So, so that's, that's, the, uh, that's the vision for you know, what we're trying to do with HPC and, and futuristic thinking about where big data is headed into uh, in the future, in the short term future with HPC. Uh, very, uh, very interesting. Uh, and you have been just explaining to us this life cycle of the uh, research in, in these areas, uh, the applications, scientists research, but um, data itself has a life cycle. And how is this scientific big data's life cycle different than traditional data life cycle? This is an excellent, excellent question, right? So, so the way I would, uh, I would think about it is I can put them into four dimensions, right? So I always talk about the customer first. And so the customer is one dimension where the person that's going to be using the system or using the data is somebody that has a curious question. He's just looking for an answer real quick. He's like, hey, I have this hypothesis. I want to go find something, something from the data. Or it could be a person that knows how to write code. So he's like, oh, if I had that data, I think it will be relevant to the insight I'm trying to draw from what I have over here. So he's trying to come up with some methods to put the uh, two insights together. Or it could be somebody that owns data and wants to make it available for 100 people so they can start disseminating it, right? So let's say, irrespective of what the source is, the inspiration to build a system that uses the scientific big data towards something of value is going to come from a user that has a question, a user that has code, or a user that brings in data in some form, shape, or, 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 or form, right? So, so that's, the, that's, that's the user access. And then from an infrastructure perspective, I, I see you know, the progression of what's happening with scientific data in, in its life cycle along three axes. The first one, I call it the platform axis, where you know, you're looking for infrastructure to house the data at different levels of maturity within your organization. And then on the y-axis, I kind of look at you know, the data maturity of where in the data lifecycle is this particular organization. I'm gonna get, in get into the details a little bit. And then once you have the platform and you know your data maturity, you start thinking about what kinds of compute are they going to do on this data? And then you think about the figure of merit on what are the patterns that this data workload is going to cause? And does throughput matter on the one side or does latency matter on the other side? And how do I optimize the system based on these requirements? And so to walk you through an example, you can think about you know, when somebody walks in with, with big data that, that has the scientific spirit of having to do some interactive exploratory work on it, they initially start off with, I want a storage system. I just need to put all these data sets. It's coming in, I can collect a terabyte in an hour, and uh, in a few, few days, I have a petabyte of data. I just need some system to store it so I don't have to throw it away afterwards. So you start with the storage system. And then next thing you know, that storage system is full, or you have other data sets sitting somewhere else that you need to put those pieces together. You have to think about, how do I query multiple angles? Right? So that's, that, becomes a, that becomes the next challenge. And then you start thinking about, I'm an organization that now has 30 people working on the petabyte of data. So how do I create infrastructure that supports a, a team of folks that don't disrupt the functionality of the data system, but are able to leverage the data to create value, right? And so this is where you start thinking about how do I bring and create workspaces for developers to access data, to code, to write their applications, to do the extractions that they're supposed to do from the data. And again, this goes kind of maps to the level levels I was talking about earlier. The next stage of the platform is to say, I have one person that now wants to use and build a 100 GPU model, right? And how do you feed that person with 100 GPUs and how do you give them access to that? And, and as this process goes on, where your organization started from, I just need a mechanism to store data 
all the way to, I need a mechanism to be able to do this fast. You also go through this maturity of the data itself. So the data on your storage system was just sitting down as files. And then you start thinking about, have this domain knowledge, which makes this raw file data something much more usable. It's curated. I'm able to extract features that are important to me. And then you structure the data, and then you put them into a form that's queryable, pick and choose a database of your choice, or you just index and catalog these files so that you can retrieve them in a, in, a, in a moment's notice later on. And so while you're doing this, the different patterns of compute on this data happens around pre-processing, profiling, you know, statistical modeling, you think about machine learning, and you think about streaming, right? So, so you see this entire spectrum of activity going on. And then the data pattern I talked about could be, you know, is this a batch workload? Is this an iterative workload? Is this an interactive workload? You know, am I using every data item once? Or am I using subsets of data several times? Or am I using different subsets each time and so forth? So when you build a system, this is how we go through this process, right? Thinking about different types of data patterns for different platforms at different stages of maturity for different users. Does it make sense, Deha? Yeah, makes perfect sense to me. Rangan, you spoke a lot about technology. You gave us great examples, but our audience is also interested about you personally. You came from India and then you lived almost the second half of your life in the United States. Can you draw some comparison? What are the benefits and drawbacks of one versus the other cultures? It's, it's, a, it's a very interesting, very interesting topic of mine where you know, I try to discuss about uh, philosophy and, uh, and, and the cost of living and everything else. And so you, you see this stark difference between two cultures in India, right? So you've had the Eastern culture where people think about life as an infinite cycle. And then over here, you think about life as a decision tree of good versus evil. It's more of a decision tree versus a cycle approach, right? And then you start thinking about, you know, what's more important to you in, in culture. Sometimes it's about food. Sometimes it's about how do you consume food? The, the consumerism versus the utilitarian approach of, of society is quite contrast uh, between USA and India. So, so and the one that always gets me is, uh, is driving on the streets, right? So in India, we are used to driving on the left. Here it's about driving on the right. And uh, not only that, you know, the way you behave on the street when you're driving is also quite different. So one, one the USA assumes that everybody follows rules and therefore everybody is safe. And so in India, you have to drive with a protectionist attitude. You take care of yourself. And so if everybody takes care of themselves, everybody's good, right? So, so that's the difference in how, how uh, people survive in these two different cultures. So. <laughs> uh, great, great examples. Um, uh, switching the topics at HP, we truly care about inclusion and diversity. What does it mean for you? So most people think, you know, inclusion and diversity is a good bullet on, on, on a corporate deck. But I, I think inclusion and diversity is about giving somebody, giving someone a chance to learn and contribute, right? And I've been a beneficiary and a benefactor of, uh, of, 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 of inclusion and diversity. And I'm going to start with uh, a story where I actually benefited from it. And uh, especially with public speaking and the ability to, to articulate ideas and communicate scientific principles and so forth. And I took a class in, uh, in, in theater while in school to get to be a better presenter and a better communicator. The art of you know, using your hands, bringing out shapes when you're speaking and things like that. I actually learned in a theater class. I was an engineering student that was not even allowed into a theater class. Right? So if I was not allowed, then I wouldn't be able to learn all these skills. So that's when the first few ideas of what it means to be listening to somebody else's domain where you're not the expert. It was actually a learning opportunity you know, struck my head at the time. 
And since then, I think I've started, you know, making sure that I act in a way I'm inclusive and diverse. And I've been four out of four, right? And, and so uh, one instance that comes to mind is, uh, is an intern I hired. He was 55 years old. He was doing his bachelor's at this time, getting this degree just because he said he went to his dad when he was 18, right? You give that person a chance, we end up writing a patent together, and then we end up writing multiple papers together, and we won an already 100 award for having given him a chance, right? And then there was another instance where uh, I hired a literature major who was interested in, in programming. And guess what? A few years later, a couple more papers, ends up doing a PhD in, uh, in, in computer science, right? So, so there's always, you know, people think about diversity as something that comes up with new ideas. People think about diversity as something that contributes to creativity. But, uh, but I, I think diversity needs to be there to execute the idea from, from the moment it's born, from inception all the way to execution. And I, I'm, I'm happy that I'm in a position where I'm able to do that at HPE. Truly amazing, uh, truly amazing. Are you sure that uh, the movie in turn with Robert De Niro wasn't screened based on your example? I, I wish I was a superstar, but yeah, that is a trivia. I have been in a movie where you see my face, but uh, no, but not De Niro category. So. <laughs> I, I'm not sure if you're a superstar, but uh, you're acting as one. Um, every <laughs> night around 2, 3, 4 a.m., I'm getting emails with you with different files. I'm just wondering, do you ever recharge? How do you recharge from working on AI, HPC, big data? I think you, your question had the answer in it, right? So I told you, I, I, you know, most of the family is in India and I live in the Pacific Northwest. And so, so between the two time zones, that's how we recharge. But you know, I depend a lot, a lot on my family. I lean on them for uh, emotional support and so forth. And that's why, you know, it's a pleasure to actually st be staying up late to have conversations that are important to you in life with, with family, right? So that's one, one approach. And then I do have two other uh, activities that, I, that I'm passionate about here in the U.S. that keeps me uh, sane during the day. I play tennis and, uh, and yeah, so nothing, nothing better than, you know, a good tennis game where you can hit a backhand winner, right? And I know you're a Djokovic fan, but uh, I still like my Federer and Wawrinka backhands better, single-handed backhands better than Djokovic's double-handed. But anyway, that's, that's a discussion for another day. And uh, I do play some music too. So I play an instrument called Veena. It's the uh, South Indian version of a sitar. It's the Eastern version of a guitar similar fret pattern, similar uh, structure of, of strings and so forth. It's just the way you play it is a lot more continuous than discrete set of notes. So, so that keeps me interested and passionate in, in life to come back the next day morning and work until 2 a.m. again. So it's, it's good. Good work and then uh, good fun after it. Thank you very much, Rangan. This was a, a, a great story. Uh, a fascinating examples uh, from real life uh, applications in high performance computing in scientific big data, AI, uh, but also great examples about inclusion, diversity, and, uh, and also sports and music that you practice. I learned a lot and I hope the audience uh, enjoyed it as well.